Well, hello there, and welcome to The Pursuit of Dadliness. I'm your host, Patrick Wyman. Thanks so much for joining me today. One of the wonderful things about getting older, in my opinion, is that we accumulate contacts and acquaintances from all sorts of places. It's a big world out there, and even if we leave a particular stage of life or a place behind and move on to something new, those relationships don't have to disappear. Over time, if you're active about it, you can wind up knowing all sorts of people. A kid in your 7th grade math class that you rediscover on Instagram decades later, a co-worker who writes a great novel years down the road, or colleagues in the same field who you've always wanted to get a good chance to talk with. And that's the case here. So I am really stoked about our guest for today. I read his writing religiously when I was getting into mixed martial arts and combat sports what seems like a lifetime ago, uh, which made me realize that you could actually find some deep insights into humanity in these really unlikely corners. He's also one of the few that I kept reading and listening to even after I stopped watching and working on all that stuff. Ben Folks has written about MMA for a bunch of different outlets, including The Athletic, USA Today, which my dad would always pick up when he was staying in hotels and read your stories, uh, and Sports Illustrated, and currently co-hosts the co-main event podcast with Chad Dundas, another highly qualified dad culture expert with whom I am sure I'll be speaking in the future. Ben is also a legit capital W writer. His fiction appeared in Best American Short Stories in 2015, and he's been published in a bunch of different literary magazines. For the purposes of this show, Ben is a highly, highly qualified expert in dad culture. And in fact, he and Chad and the co-main event were my introduction to the weird and wonderful world of parenting back before I had ever changed a diaper. Really made me feel better about what I was about to get myself into. So for that and so much else, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Pat. I I'm, was really excited when I heard you were going to be doing this just as a listener and as somebody who is a Big Tides of History fan. And so obviously I couldn't turn down a chance to be a guest. Well, I really appreciate it. And what I was saying about you and Chad and the co-main event being like my introduction to parenting, honestly, like right around the time we had our first child, uh, you and I were DMing on Twitter and you said uh, something that has stuck with me for literally the past now seven years that like when you're parenting, your time is just chopped up into little pieces of confetti. Yeah. And so like you're doing like three minutes of this and five minutes of that. And that was such a, a, a viable insight to go with. And it's it unlocked parenting for me. I'm like, why don't I have any long-term memories of things that I was doing when my kids were little? A time confetti. You can't form a long-term memory when you're spending three minutes changing a diaper and then five minutes slicing up an apple. Like, of course, you're not going to remember anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in those toddler years, the time confetti thing, it's also because when you do get some time where, okay, they're engaged with something, they don't need your attention right this minute. You also don't know how long that's going to last at any moment. <laughs> That could all come crashing down, literally. They could fall off something, bonk their head, and you're, you are required to jump into action. And so it makes it really hard to do anything that feels useful or meaningful with that time because you never know how much of it there is. I will say, though, that part gets better. You know, the older they get, the longer they can stay engaged with one topic, the less they need your hands-on attention all the time. And also, I think the better you get at managing it and learning how to use the time that you do have. Yeah, I mean, you develop like six senses about these things, six, maybe seventh sense. I don't I don't know uh, where like you can tell when it's too quiet. Yeah, you're like, there's there's something happening here that I should be concerned about. I haven't heard from them for a while. Like I walked into my kitchen the other day and I found that my kids had built a fort in our pantry. It's just stuffed animals everywhere. Just a carpet of stuffies lining everything. And like I should have known I was mad at myself for not having known that the silence was a bad sign. 
Yeah, I mean, I've had that adjustment period as my kids have gotten older. I have two daughters who are 10 and 8 now, and there are times where I'll go, it's too quiet, what's going on? And then I'll go and seek them out in the house, and they're just reading. They're just <laughs> sitting there being, you know, smart, thoughtful kids, just reading their books, and I'm going, okay, maybe I should chill out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's hard. I mean, I feel like getting older as a parent, the like learning to chill out thing is a whole other adjustment phase because you've spent years learning how to not chill out yeah. about anything at all because everything is a potential disaster. Yeah. One of the things that I feel like I learned kind of early on, but had to keep learning over and over again in different ways was that when you're raising kids, so much of it is all phases nothing is really permanent and you go through this period where you're like okay they need a whole lot of my attention in this particular way but that's not going to last forever and some of the phases last longer than others but you sort of realize okay we're moving into a new zone i have to adjust my expectations what they're going to need from me what's most important for me to do with the time that i have with them and i feel like that's probably just going to continue happening until they're adults and i it's it's a tough thing to have to remind yourself of because there are times especially at this point where having been a dad for over a decade you get cocky you think you got it all figured out you feel like okay i'm nailing this i see somebody at the park with their toddler having a meltdown and i'm just like brother they don't want goldfish right now that's not gonna work you know, you, you feel like you got all the answers and you don't. You have the answers for a period that is gone and is not coming back. You need to figure out the answers for the period that's just over the horizon. Yeah. yeah. What's the saying? And I feel like this is highly appropriate for a dad culture show. Like you're always prepared to fight the last war yeah. and not the next one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's totally true about parenting. I mean, that's I. you mentioned the goldfish thing like my mom when I was little. And this is speaking of a phase that lasted for a surprisingly long time. She would just keep bags of oyster crackers in her purse for me. And she called them cranky crackers. Uh, and whenever I would get cranky, she would just pull out some crackers and, and off we went. That lasted till I was probably like 11 or 12. Wow. <laughs> like that's Sometimes all you need is oyster crackers. And now I've started doing that with my kids and calling them cranky crackers. And it's really caught on. It's been a big hit. So I don't know that that'll last until they're 11 or 12, but I'm uh, I'm hopeful that we can at least squeeze some uh, some improvements out of the cranky crackers. Yes, yeah, I've accidentally taught my daughters about the concept of the emergency donut, which like, <laughs> we walk sometimes on the weekend. Uh, so I'm, I'm divorced and I have my kids half the time. And so I'll have them one week and through the weekend and then not the next weekend. And when I have them, I'll, one of our traditions, especially because I live in a more walkable neighborhood than my ex-wife does, we'll walk down to the grocery store on a Saturday morning, buy donuts, walk back, enjoy our donuts out on the back stoop when the weather's nice. And sometimes, you know, I'll buy them each one donut and then I'll buy two for me. And they're like, why are you buying two? And I was like, well, that second one is my emergency donut. I don't know if I'm going to need it. It's like 99 cents. I might as well buy it. It might come a point later in this day, maybe tomorrow. I don't know where I feel like I need that donut. I need the emotional lift of that donut. And they've started incorporating it be like, had a rough day feel like i could maybe use an emergency donut i'm just like okay i hear you i hear that i i mean honestly as parenting goes you could do far worse than inculcating the idea of an emergency donut in your children um i i also have a donut story for you that we used to walk a very long way when we lived in la to this incredible donut shop uh, it's called sk donuts for anybody who's in la you gotta you gotta check it out it's just it's mind-bogglingly good but so we would walk like 
four miles round trip to this donut shop. But we would tell my son that they only allowed you to get one donut a week, <laughs> uh, that, that they had strict limits because he'd be like, well, I had enjoyed this donut and I would like another one. Or we would be driving past there on our way to somewhere else. He'd be like, can we, can we stop and get it? I'm like, no, man, they, they, they marked your name down. They already know, like you have had your donut for this week. You're, you're cut off. Yeah, you could get away with that for only so long till they see somebody walk in there, get a box of dozen donuts and walk out and be like, hey, wait a minute. This this is true. He was surprisingly young when he figured that out. Like, you can't pull the wool over that boy's eyes for too long, I mean, which probably good for him in the long run. In the short term, for me as a parent, deeply problematic. Yeah, yeah. you, you come up with a, a short term fix, but then you realize you're just standing there with your fingers in the dam. It's not it's not going to last forever. That's true. But but again, what a wonderful metaphor for parenting. You're just constantly Dutch boying your yeah. way through life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll shift gears a little bit here. So I've noticed you've been doing a lot of working out this summer. You've got a, a handy tagline for it. How is the summer of Swole coming along? Honestly, fantastic. It's coming along <laughs> great. You know, I went through a period over the last couple of years where especially I felt unmotivated by my usual gym stuff. And some of it was that I had a gym I liked and I was going to, and they just closed very suddenly. Like I walked in one day and they had a sign like, Friday is the last day. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, Can you do that? And so they just shut down and then they sort of shuffled us all over to a different gym that I did not like as much. This gym had a real kind of, I don't know where these people were on January 6th and I'm afraid to ask mm -hmm. vibe to it. Like yep. all the magazines by the treadmills are like guns and ammo. And it, mm -hmm. it was just old equipment and I just didn't like it in there. And so I found that I wasn't going very often. I tried to find another one and I was just feeling like, man, I've been lifting weights since high school football. Maybe I'm just sick of the same stuff and maybe I need a complete paradigm shift when it comes to showing up and doing my regular gym stuff because I just felt so bored with it and so I just wanted to shift into a different kind of mode with it and I've been able to do that by sort of like building my own gym in the garage and I feel much better about it and I've had though as I've aged as my life has changed and my body changes I've had to sort of realign some of my perceptions and some of my ways of going about it you know like mm -hmm. I have to, I found that especially when it comes to my own exercise routine is really important to me for my mental health. That, that took me years to learn that just, I, I've dealt with some difficult mental health stuff, you know, kind of throughout my adult life, but especially lately the last few years and having a consistent exercise routine also with actual therapy is an important <laughs> part of it. And so I had to sort of realize at some point you need to make your goal less I want to look like this or be able to do this or like some kind of tangible physical thing. The number one goal needs to be consistency. And the number two goal needs to be don't injure yourself, you dummy, because <laughs> that's going to completely ruin any chance at consistency. And then you're going to spiral down into a depression and it's going to be way harder to get yourself back up out of it and into a good routine again. And so I had to realign that way of thinking that instead of trying to get six pack abs, what I'm trying to do is make sure I stick to my program and do it regularly every day and kind of be a little more forgiving with yourself when you're like, Hey, today wasn't a great day. I didn't do everything I wanted to do, but it's always better to show up and do something than to not do anything. And that has been a, a learning process for me, but I finally gotten to 
a better place of understanding with it, I think. I mean, the, you've you've just described in detail, in quite insightful detail. I, I think the essence of the fitness journey as a uh, an aging man getting up there, like you have to accept, you can't do things that you did when you were younger. It wasn't a good idea then, and it's definitely <laughs> not a good idea now. Yeah. <laughs> like I look back at some of the stuff I did, and it's like, what were you thinking, man? Like I uh, I, I had a, a minor pec tear when I was twenty, and just didn't go to the doctor, and didn't know that that was a problem. And it's like, oh, that really hurts. Like eventually, years down the road, got it checked out. The doctor's like, you have a ton of scar tissue in there. That's that was really stupid. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know what? That was stupid. Um, it gives you some perspective on these things, but I, I liked what you said about like mixing things up and making some changes to keep yourself interested that like, it strikes me that you can try to plan like optimal things. Like what is the best thing that I could possibly be doing for myself? But if you don't do it, then it doesn't really matter. Right. So you might as well do the stuff that you actually enjoy because doing something is better than doing nothing and that like you're going to have bad days, but any day where you can go and do something is a pretty good day, honestly. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I've gotten through therapy a lot is a concept my therapist introduced to me once was cognitive rigidity, which I sometimes fall victim to where I get in my head. This is the way it needs to be. This is the way I expect it to be. This is the point I want to get to or the thing I want to be doing with my time, whatever it is. And then when the reality does not meet that expectation or that goal, getting really frustrated and letting it derail you. When instead, be like, okay, it's okay to have some goals, but maybe make them more broad and more manageable. And you don't need to make the goal six-pack abs necessarily. And you don't need to be so obsessive about it because that's a problem that I sometimes get into, especially with physical stuff, fitness stuff, is when I get into it a little bit and then I think, okay, well, what would be a little bit better than that? What would be a little bit better? And then the next thing you know, I'm kind of obsessive. And if I do that, it's okay for a little while and you're waking up in the morning and, you know, the first five minutes after you wake up at least where you're like, hey, I, I actually have abs before I drink so much as a sip of water or eat anything. And you feel pretty good, but then you can't really maintain obsessive levels for that long because something's going to happen you know especially when you have two small kids you're going somebody's going to get sick and then you're going to get sick your life is going to get derailed a little bit there are going to be days where you just can't meet all those goals and so the goals need to be a little bit more like what would be holistically better for you as a person and not just to meet this goal of i want to be able to lift this amount or run a mile in this time or you know look like this with my shirt off like those can be fine tertiary motivators but you can't make it everything no. And honestly, for most people, especially as we're all getting older, the pursuit of abs can be a deeply unhealthy thing Not <laughs> for, for both physical and psychological reasons. Right. Like if you're physically pushing yourself past the point that your body can handle as some like if you're in your late 30s or, or into your 40s and you're trying to get abs, you've probably been exercising for long enough to have a long and illustrious injury history. Like <laughs> yes. you and the and pushing yourself to the point where like trying to work your way into having abs at that point in your life can really, really be problematic. Like I, I go to physical therapy all the time. Like I look around, I, I see what we're dealing with here. Like I I know I I can take one look at somebody who's coming and I'll be like, you wanted abs, didn't you? Like, and, and how's that working out for you now? Like, how's that, how's that tendinopathy treating you? Well, yeah. <laughs> and I also like, I've had to learn, 
it's dangerous to you to get obsessive about that stuff for a couple different reasons. One is like the physical consequences. The other is you get into a mode where your your friends are going, hey, we're meeting after work to have a beer. And you're like, well, I can't have a beer. That'll ruin my goal of having abs. <laughs> we're getting nachos for the table. I can't do that. I'm trying to get these abs, brother. But no, you don't need the abs. What you no, need is you a need... beer with your friends every now and then. What you need and, and it, the nachos. Yeah. You need the nachos. You need <laughs> the emergency donuts sometimes. You need to be able to have some of that stuff and not get so focused on these goals that you just made up for yourself that are not really important to anybody yeah, but they... you. Uh, that yeah. you you miss out on the rest of your life happening all around you. Yeah, can't stress that enough. Entirely made up goals, yes. right? Like these, like these have these have effectively no bearing on reality. God, the obsession thing. I, I feel that a lot, and it took me a lot of years of of therapy, and thank God for antidepressants to figure out that like I was using exercise to punish myself for just for years and years and years and doing stupid, insane things and like training. Like when I was doing Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, like doing it for like fourteen hours a week. Why, why would you do that? Yeah. As somebody, I'm not, I'm not competing. Like I got just good enough to where people who were actually good could, could beat the crap out of me right? and would use me and would use me as meat for sparring rounds. Like, is that really a point that you want to get to at the time? I thought so, but looking back on it and feeling how it feels when I get out of bed every day, like I realized I was working through some stuff, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't quite realize like what your actual motivation for doing a lot of that stuff is until years yeah. later. Yeah, and and now I feel way better about it. Like I compete in Olympic weightlifting, which is super fun, but it's mostly fun because I like the structure of it. I like the expectations of it. I know what I'm going to do when I go into the gym. I have coach, there, so there's a community around it. I like it for that reason, not because I'm obsessed with hitting a particular set of numbers. You know, like yeah, I mean, hey, well, get- Chad and I were just talking. We saw you on Instagram throwing around the kettlebell, and I was like, I don't even know where you get a kettlebell that size. Like I got kettlebells <laughs> out in my garage gym, but I don't, I don't have anything like that. You know, and we're do- doing all kinds of stuff with the kettlebell that I didn't even know was possible. It's it's fun as, but I just like doing the kettlebell stuff too. Sometimes I like do I like doing the kettlebell stuff. Not actually helpful for the sport that I compete in, really. I don't think, but it's like well, it was a Thursday. It was 110 degrees. I don't want to lift some weights. Uh, like let's let's pull out the kettlebell. Let's see if we can let's see if we can make it sing, huh? Like let's let's see what we can do with it. And you know that's it's just fun. The whole point of the stuff is yeah, it's supposed to make you healthy, but it's also supposed to be fun to do it. And I realize that everybody's definition of fun is going to differ, but like that is fun as hell for me. Like if you can throw around a heavy weight, like the feeling after you lift something and like knowing that you've accomplished just a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing, like that's a little dopamine hit I can carry through the rest of my day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fun aspect of it, you know, is something where I realized when I had to transition out of doing jujitsu, which was my main outlet, my main physical focus, and mm-hmm. also more than I realized at the time, a big part of my social life for years and years through my 20s and most of my 30s. And my neck eventually just got so bad from the wear and tear, a thing that has happened to a whole lot of people from wrestling and jujitsu, and in the exact same ways where the discs in your neck are just not made to be yanked on that much for that long and it finally got to the point where after dealing with neck stuff for years it was causing a lot of nerve damage in my arms and down into my hands and fingers and really just destroying my quality of life and I finally had to come to terms with like maybe the portion of your life where you do jujitsu three nights a week is over and needing to replace it with something else but it's a hard thing to replace the especially the 
not only the sense of fun that you were getting out of doing it, but here's a really intense physical activity that while you were doing it, you could only focus on that. You could not afford to be thinking about you know, whatever's going on at work or home or other stressors that you have in your life. And so you're necessarily doing something that after the end of it, you feel completely emptied out. You feel like you were completely relaxed in a way, even though you were involved in this intense process of just trying not to get choked. And when you lose that kind of suddenly, it took a long time of searching around, trying to find some other ways to replace that in my life. Well, Cause it's cool to be present, right? Like it's right. cool to be forced to be totally present in an activity. That is a feeling that we rarely get. We live distracted lives, right? We're, we're on our phone. We're waiting for an email. We're, you know, multitasking. Like the idea of just doing a single thing and focusing entirely on that is almost foreign to us at this point. So when you get that opportunity, like it's hard not for that. And even leaving aside the dopamine and the endorphins and the adrenaline and all of that cool stuff, which is a whole chemical cocktail that you can get addicted to. Just the feeling of being there is wildly unfamiliar and appealing. Right. Yeah. And a thing that maybe once you get used to it, you don't realize how important it is to your life until it's not there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you've been working out a lot in your garage gym. Um, I too have a garage gym. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, it's been my lifelong goal. What is it about the garage gym that is so appealing? Like as a place, as an activity, as a hobby, like what is it about this because I know we're not alone in this, right? Like the garage gym is on the point of becoming a meme for dad culture more broadly. So what is it about this? Why? Yeah, I mean, for me, especially at this stage of my life, so much of it is about the way I can fit it into my life wherever I have a chance, as long as it's right out there. When it was, I got to go to the gym, then I've suddenly got to think about a few more factors and they're not insurmountable or anything. I mean, the gym is like a mile up the road from me, but it's also like, well, there's certain times of the day I just can't go there because there's too many people and it'll be way too annoying and I'll just get angry and I'll not be able to do my stuff or where, you know, I just think like, okay, I need to have an hour of time blocked off to go to the gym. And if I got to pick up kids from school in 30 minutes, it's not enough time. By the time I go there, park, put my stuff in a locker, get out there, I'll basically be able to do like one thing and turn around and have to come back. And when I have it just right out there, it makes it so that even if I have a really busy day and things didn't go in my schedule the way I thought they were going to go, I didn't have that block of time to go, I could go, all right, well, I got 15 minutes before the next thing happens. I could go in there and do something. Or where I feel like it's hard to motivate myself to even leave the house. Well, I could just walk out to the garage. And and it's way easier for me. I've suffered sometimes from an all or nothing type mentality. And it's easier in both exercise stuff and in my own writing to tell myself, well, you don't have to go do everything. Just go do something. Just something to keep you in the rhythm so that you don't fall out of your usual schedule. Go do something. And even if you don't feel like you got it in, you do a full thing. Just go out there, stretch a little bit, do some mobility stuff. And then the next thing you know, once you get started, it's easier to go, okay, well, you're feeling all right now. Go and do one more thing and one more. And it's the same thing. I do the same thing with writing sometimes. Just sit down and do a little something. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're into it. And it makes it so much easier to do that. It makes it also so much easier to do it around childcare where mm – -hmm. Now I don't have to think about, okay, do I have a time period where the kids are engaged with something else? They're at school where I can afford to get away to the gym. Now I can just be like, hey, if anybody needs me, 
I'll be lifting weights in the garage. And I, especially during the summer where there's a lot of that unstructured time, I do it all the time, just telling them, all right, you guys be doing this thing. Anybody needs me, you know where I'll be. And it just makes it so much easier to fit into my life. It also makes it a thing where it feels like this is mine. And if there's a piece of equipment that I don't have here that I feel like I need or would really like to have, I can get it. I can build it to my specifications. I don't have anything in there that is not useful to me that's in the way, anything like that. Plus, I can get in there, listen to 90s rap, listen to my podcast if I want to, lift weights with no shirt on if I want to, all that kind of stuff that just makes it so much more an enjoyable experience. I do wonder sometimes uh, where I'm like, did you just find a way to justify leaning into agoraphobia? Like, <laughs> did you just create one less reason to leave the house? I already work from home. You know, I'm not especially social as a person. So did I just take the one thing that was a good way to get me out of the house and at least around people and remove it and do it at home. And I go, maybe I did do that, but I'm also using it way more than I used the gym. So it's still, I think, a net positive. There's a bunch of different components there, right? Because like everything you're saying about reducing the barrier to entry to just go and do something is huge. You can't overstate how important that is. Just like you said, going out and doing some mobility, it occurs to me like, a lot of working out as you get older is spending a ton of time getting ready to work out. Yeah. Um, getting your creaky body ready to move like a panther for 15 minutes. Yeah, you can't and just jump into that. You know no, that. Uh, no, God, my workouts are about an hour and a half, two hours by the time everything's said and done. And I usually don't even touch the barbell for 30 minutes. It takes me a full 30 minutes to get to the point where I feel like I can bend over far enough to pick it up and then put it over my head. Like I got, it's, This is an investment of time to get to the point where we can even, even do a thing. But I wonder the agoraphobia, the social interaction, I feel like that and the working out are almost two separate components because I, I love people watching. I love people watching at the gym, especially like there are days when I don't miss being matched up with somebody who is going to try to sell me fascist coffee. Like, that's the, like, like somebody who's going to tell me about their, the new coffee startup that just happens to have a Sonnenrad on the label. Like I don't miss not talking to that guy. I do occasionally miss talking to the guy with an extremely faded tattoo on his arm. Who's telling me about his most recent juice cleanse and has like a sexual predator mustache. That was a real guy at my old gym in LA. Like this guy always wanted to do arms together. And I'm like, I got some questions about what you're doing outside of here. He was a bartender at BJ's Pizza. Uh, oh, nice. It was he was the, one of the sleaziest people I have ever talked to in my life. Like shout out to him. But like so, there are times where I feel like I'm missing those interactions, and those are fun. But there are other times where I'm like, was that worth going to and subjecting myself to the ins and outs of a commercial gym? I'm not sure. Yeah, I just especially think that I am so much more consistent when I'm able to just walk out yeah. there and do it, that it makes such a big difference to me. And even if it is like I'm missing a reason to leave the house or I'm missing some kind of social element, I would rather find another way to replace that and to replace it in a more meaningful way where I'm actually getting something out of it. So speaking of which, you've been playing rec league hockey for yes. a long time now. I remember listening to the co-main event when you first started uh, doing rec league hockey, which feels like, which I'm probably dating myself as a co-maniac there. But like, what does that do for you as an outlet? I mean, do you recommend this as an activity for the, uh, the socially challenged? <laughs> I love it. And I've made a lot of good friends through it. And I started, I think, five or six years ago 
around six years, I think, of what I've been playing. And I started from absolute zero. Did not know how to ice skate. Barely knew the rules of hockey. <laughs> and just had seen it and thought it looked like a fun sport to play. You know, I grew up mostly in Southern California, so there just weren't a lot of opportunities to ice skate at all. And especially not any opportunities to learn to play hockey. And when I had to stop doing jujitsu and I sort of floundered around for a little while looking for something that I could replace it with in my life. And I thought, well, I'd always wanted to learn this. Let me try a completely new thing. And the thing I really have come to appreciate it is that at this point in your life, you know, when I started my late thirties or now in my, you know, I'm 43, if I do a sport that I learned as a youth or as a young man, whether it's tennis, football, or baseball, or all those sports that you grow up learning to play, I'm going to be worse at it now than I was then, just because <laughs> physically I'm worse. And there's no way around that. And so, you, you know, you got to make your peace with that if you're going to do that. But if you start a whole new thing where you start at absolute zero, you can actually see improvement still because you don't know how to do it at all. And there's a real pleasure to that, to being able to see yourself learning how to do new things, adding new tools to your toolbox. This past season was the first hockey season in which I felt like, okay, the wraparound goal is now a thing that I can semi-consistently at least attempt to do on purpose. It used to be <laughs> not a thing where, you know, you're, you're driving down with the puck, they force you to the outside, you think, well, either I got to pass it or I got to try to make a move to get on the inside. If I get stuck behind the net, I, I can't do anything with it. Now I have that where I scored a couple wraparound goals and I was like, okay, this is a thing I can do now. This is another tool I can bring to my game. And there aren't a whole lot of sports that I could take up and feel like I'm still adding stuff at this point in my life. So that's been really fun. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's way more social than a lot of the other things that I've done. Like as much as I like being at the jujitsu gym, being around all the guys and everything, there's also like a certain type of person who does jujitsu and the range is not quite as big as the type of people who are into beer league hockey. And it's co-ed for one thing, a lot of the leagues. So you just meet more people. You, you get to be friends with them in a different kind of way. You get, you're involved in a team activity instead of just you on your own martial arts journey. You know, you're out here. We're all trying to do the same goal. And there's a nice thing where we all work together as a team. We win or we lose. We go out for pizza and beer afterwards and we hang out. And it's not quite as physically intense. It doesn't give me that same feeling as jujitsu where when you're driving home at the end of jujitsu, whether it was good or bad you feel just completely emptied out. I don't quite get there some nights. You know, there are games where we have fewer people show up and it's a little more exhausting. I love those. I want to go home totally exhausted. You don't quite get that same kind of fix, but I do feel like I get more of a social feel. I get more friends out of it. And a thing that I feel like we're all really doing together rather than I'm doing this thing and I need some partners to do it on, you know? <laughs> oh God, I felt that so much as you were as you were talking about the feeling of going home after a really intense combat sports training session is unmatched there is no feeling like that in the world uh i, I used to smoke a pack a day and the post muay thai cigarette uh was my favorite thing in the entire world <laughs> i i would like i as i'm saying this i hear it now now that i'm saying it but <laughs> uh i drove an old truck at this point in time and so i it had a cloth seat so there was just a salty sweat outline of my back on the seat 
in addition to so it's just that plus the smell of cigarettes and like anybody who says that like sports or fitness is about being healthy like those are you got to separate that shit those are those are two entirely separate things yeah it's really a Uh, a portrait of a charmer i imagine you picking some woman up for a date and get in the truck that smells like cigarettes and has a sweat outline of my torso on seat absolutely that wasn't even i mean i'm sure it was worse it also smelled like spilled diet pepsi like in those days I'll say this. It was a really delicate chemical balance because I was <laughs> I was drinking a lot of Diet Pepsi. I was smoking a lot of cigarettes. And then to come down from all of that because I'd been drinking caffeine, smoking cigarettes. And then that I would end the day by doing Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. So then I had to smoke weed to come down off of that. Naturally. And that's that's just a really it, it was, you know, it was it was like doing chemistry with your brain chemistry here. It was uh, it was it was delicate. Absolutely. I have done a lot of that similar chemistry <laughs> in my own brain. <laughs> and, and you know, it was it was fun to experiment. Uh, as self-destructive as some of that might sound in hindsight, I actually became a much better person over the years of doing that. Like I, like it, it really chilled me out. I was wound pretty tight for a really long time and that that really helped that plus therapy like uh there's something about combat sports this is something i want to i i want to talk to you a little bit about that that if you stick with it is deeply grounding and centering and can make you a, a better person even as you're doing something that does not seem like it's got a lot of social benefits like it benefited me a lot personally and i i just feel and like I was doing it when I was in grad school mostly and I felt like so lonely and isolated from the people that I was in grad school with for the most part. There were a couple of good exceptions, a couple of really good friends I made, but it felt like a really isolating experience. And I was shocked by how much more my training partners seemed to care about how I was doing as a person than the people who were putatively supposed to be like invested in how my life was going at that point in time. And I don't know it was like a real growth thing. And I know that sounds weird as like a, like, like you're going and you're just beating the crap out of each other. But like, it was a much more positive experience than most of what I was having in my twenties and early thirties. Yeah. I, you know, when I started jujitsu, I was in college and it was a great experience to give me something outside of that bubble of just going to college, going to school, doing the academics and only interacting with other college students where, you know, I went to San Diego State, so I would go do jujitsu at uh, Fabio Santos's jujitsu academy there nestled under the eight freeway. And you'd show up there and then a whole bunch of the guys that you're training with, it's dudes in the Navy, it's doctors and lawyers and regular grown up people. And you're forming these bonds with these people and seeing sort of all these other different ways to live. And it was a good way to just not get so totally isolated in that world of being just a regular college student, but also a way where you're going out there and you're being forced to confront things on kind of a nightly basis about yourself and about how you respond to tough moments, to adversity, to you get exhausted, somebody's crushing you. How are you going to deal with it? And you you build up a sort of mental resilience through doing that. I also, though, definitely fell prey at times in my life to being like, hey, this this is my therapy. This is jujitsu and stuff like that. That's my therapy, which is fine. But also wish I had realized sooner you need 
actual therapy too yeah you, yeah you need a professional at this to help you navigate some of this difficult stuff because just getting exhausted to the point that the bad voices kind of shut up for a minute is not a long-term solution it's a temporary fix yeah, this is a truly insightful point because I too also reached that point. And when I quit, I kind of went cold turkey. Um, like I had just had a ton of injuries. I dislocated my knee and never really got it treated. Like didn't realize how serious it is when your kneecap comes off, uh, <laughs> which again, I hear it now that I'm yeah. saying it, like I, I realize this in hindsight, but so like when I quit, I just kind of stopped completely. And that was also when I quit smoking cigarettes. And I also decided at that point I was going to stop smoking weed. So like, I just completely pulled out all of the chemical supports I'd been using to buttress my fragile mental health for years. Uh, and so I went from thinking like, oh, I'm in a pretty good place to like, oh God, this is this is bad. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be alone with myself. Are you kidding? Like this, like whoever this is that I'm looking at, at in the mirror is not somebody that I want to be spending time with. I don't like this guy. Like, why would anybody like this guy? You know? Yeah. And that's the thing that I have had to learn how to deal with is that sort of like unstructured time, time alone in your own head, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, through a lot of different ways, some of them through necessity and some of them that you create yourself, there's not a ton of that unstructured time in our lives that when you're if you're working you're raising children you have one or two hobbies that's kind of it and you, you can not realize the extent to which you are purposely keeping yourself busy to avoid dealing with what's going on inside your brain uh, and there will come some time though where like that stuff that's going on inside your brain is going to insist on coming to the forefront one way or another and then you're going to have to deal with it and i i go back and forth sometimes between wishing i had dealt with it or confronted it earlier but then also trying to remind myself like look if you get there eventually don't beat yourself <laughs> up about not getting there five years sooner you know yeah as as long as you do eventually get there i'm, I'm thinking about this there's a a, a certain gentleman I know, he may or may not be my dad, who has reached his eighth decade of life and is being forced to confront some things. And uh, it's a process. It's probably stuff that you should have dealt with a few decades ago, in his case, not like five years, but more maybe like 30 or 40 years ago. But I can't stress enough, you really at some point are going to have to to deal with this stuff. Like you can't keep it down forever, no matter how hard you try. Like I remember having a phone conversation with my dad where he told me a, a truly horrifying story about um, something that had happened in his family. And he ends it with, well, anyway, you can't just, well, anyway, that man, like you can't just be like, okay, now we're going to move on to the next topic of conversation. You just described this deeply screwed up, like betrayal by your mother and brother. Like you've got some stuff you're going to have to figure out there. It, it, when my dad, like he quit smoking uh, he had smoked for 50 years. He'd smoked like two packs a day and he had just used cigarettes and constant activity to stop himself from ever having to be still for long enough to have these thoughts cross his mind. And then suddenly when he stopped smoking and stopped moving all the time, he had like a hip replacement and their beloved elderly dog died like that he would be constantly taking the dog for walks. It's like all of the sudden his entire edifice came crashing down and it's like, oh, all of a sudden you've got to like deal with this stuff you've been keeping down for decades. I'm just saying, love my dad, love that he's finally working through some stuff, probably should have worked on it a little sooner. Yeah, but it also, the culture does not really encourage men to do that or hasn't encouraged them in the past, especially 
you know, you think about guys our dad's age, like it was even tougher for them. And it wasn't particularly on our radar growing up. I think of it sometimes where when I hear people talking about concussions in sports, especially in in football, and I think about playing high school football in, you know, the late 90s, nobody was talking about concussions. I remember guys getting concussions in practice and it would be a big deal if it was like he sat out Wednesday's practice because I mean, he'd be back Thursday. Of course, there's no question that he's playing in Friday night's games or starting fullback. Obviously, he's going to play in Friday night's game, but like had a bad concussion, missed one day of practice. And it's so different now. And it's very similar, I think, especially for at least men with mental health that, you know, people would wouldn't really talk about depression, wouldn't talk about actual stuff that might be going on. It was just like, okay, you might be sad. And we would always be very quick to attribute it to external factors that, you know, you're going through a hard time. There's hard stuff going on. You just got to got to work through it. You got to pick yourself up, keep going. There was not really like a detailed conversation about us, how we should be dealing with it or what might be going on or even just like sort of learning some of the terminology for what is going on and coming to that. I mean, I feel some old man opinions about when I see the way the youth manages it. There are times where I feel like, listen, not everybody can be a narcissist. Maybe if you're running into so many narcissists all the time, you are, you were really quick to reach for that label and you're, you're using all this mental health speak on each other. But I also am encouraged by the fact that it's right there on their radar and they are, are reaching for it and thinking about that kind of stuff. Whereas we had to flounder around into middle age and then start going like, okay, well maybe I should actually talk to a therapist and it doesn't make me a weirdo. Yeah. When I was probably 15 or 16, uh, I was driving to the dump with my dad. We were going to drop off a, a giant load of trash and we would always take these opportunities to have chats about not like actual life things, but you know, in the way, in the kind of coded way that you talk to another dude about stuff that's going on without ever actually discussing it. Yeah. Um, and I said explicitly to him, like, I'm having a really tough time there. Like my, the, my high school was really hard. It was like harder. I had a harder high school experience than I did in college. Like academically, it was just super demanding. And I was telling him about this stuff and he's like, Pat, you have to know, I care about this and I care about you and I want you to do well, but nobody else gives a shit. And he's like, and I stopped and I thought about it and I'm like, I think he's right. And I kind of carried that with me for about 15 or 18 years before it occurred to me that maybe he wasn't right about that. And maybe like being willing to talk about things that are going through your head is not weakness or something bad or like an automatic way to make sure that people think less of you. Like, no, you can just just say how you're doing. Like, you don't have to, like, tell everybody about your great aunt's gout, but like you can talk about this. That's the thing that uh, Chad and I are sometimes on some of our podcasts have talked about where he talks about it, going to the doctor and trying to fake his way through an eye test when he was the one who thought maybe I need to go get my eyes checked out, but there's some part of you that's inside. And it's like, well, I don't want him to think that I'm failing. I need to do is, you know, let me, let me see if I can fake my way through. Let me see if I can cheat at this doctor's exam somehow. And I've noticed that sometimes for myself where I could be walking through the grocery store feeling like I am the in the grips of an existential crisis. But when that cashier asked me how I'm doing, I'm going to say, I'm fine. How are you? Which, you know, fine to get you through a trip to the grocery store. She doesn't need to hear about everything I'm dealing with. But 
when you carry that over into your personal relationships with your friends and your loved ones and everything, then you were missing an opportunity to to sort of help yourself and to connect with other human beings about the not super easy task of being a person. Yeah, because people do care. They do care. Uh, it's not just the most tiny, limited circle. You can find people who care. Finding people who care is a big part of like what makes life worth living. But yeah, that that one always stuck with me where I'm like, what an incredible insight into how this man views the world. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so... Shifting gears just a little bit, I want to talk to you about Master and Commander. Oh, hell yeah. Because um, you're because you again are, are capital W writer. This is uh, the most highly like dad coded series of, of books out here. What is it about this, first of all, that makes it so good? And why do you think it's so dad appealing? Aside from the fact that it's tall wooden ships, which rule, obviously. Yeah, well, obviously. You know, I didn't watch that movie when it first came out. I remember <laughs> friends of mine saying, oh, I went to see it. It's boring. They're just out there on ship. Nothing happens. And so I guess I just sort of took their word for it until only probably a few years ago where I had heard enough people be like, this is really good. And I was like, okay, I'm going to check it out. I watched the movie and I went, this is incredible. And then I found out that there was a book series and I thought, okay, for sure, I'm going to check this out. And I remember the first one of the books I picked up on the back, it's all the rave reviews. And one of them said, this is basically what Jane Austen would have been writing if she was interested in British naval history. <laughs> and it is very similar to that. You think it's just going to be, you know, a rip roaring sea yarn, but especially in those first few books, uh, there's a lot of will they, won't they on various romantic entanglements. Can you make yourself a match? Can you find a good wife? Are you well positioned enough for all that? Will her mother approve all this kind of stuff that is very much Jane Austen at sea. And the thing that I really like about it, for one thing, they're extremely well-written, just line by line, the, the plots really work. They also do what any good series does, which is give you sort of a framework where you know what to expect of the books, and yet there are still surprises built in there. And if you read this series, similar to the Flashman series, which I also really like, where you go, okay, I know the broad strokes of how one of these plots is going to unfold. I don't know exactly what's going to happen to various characters. I don't know who's going to show up, who's going to get killed off in this one. Uh, but I do feel like, okay, we're we're going to get into some stuff. We're going to get into some zany adventures. Uh, but we're also going to spend a good portion of the time in all of these books plumbing the depths of male friendship. The, the friendship between Aubrey and Maturin is one of the key elements of all these books and the deepening of their characters as the books go on is really incredible. And I, I think it works really well just from a sheer plot perspective because, you know, we'd always, Chad and I would, uh, a lot would joke about how Deadwood, the HBO series, was just the stranger comes to town plot over and over again in a really mm -hmm. enjoyable way. We loved it, you know, but it's like a thing you can do in the old Western style is... If it's getting boring, it's getting stagnant, stagecoach is coming, who's on it? And immediately we're interested. We've got renewed interest in the whole thing. And this does the same thing where whenever things are starting to flag a little bit, the pace is starting to slow, sail off the starboard bow. And who could it be? We're going to find out. We're going to get into it. It also works really well historically because if you're doing what were the British up to and where did they go in the early 19th century, everywhere. 
They were everywhere, up in everybody's business. So that you never run out of new locales to put them in. Oh, here we're off the coast of Africa. We're going to be in India. We're going to, you know, in the South Pacific. They're just all over the place. And so you have constant new settings that you can throw them into. But also... You just come to understand these characters, the friendship between them, a friendship that is both extremely real and personal and intimate, but also, sure, they're going to come to a point where they almost have a duel, where they almost kill each other. You know, this that's male friendship for you. And it, it just works for me on so many different levels uh, that both as just like really plots that like click right along, but also I, where by the end I feel like, I did get something out of this. This was not just like some kind of like pot boiler mystery. Yeah, there, there are so few really compelling depictions of male friendship in literature and pop culture more generally, and especially not ones that you see lasting over extremely long periods of time. Like you may have a like a buddy comedy, sure, but a buddy comedy is usually more about the process of building a friendship in the first place than it is about like, like there's an odd couple vibe, but instead of them being friends already, it's about the process of how they overcome their differences to find what unites them and makes them better together or whatever. Like the, the Master and Commander novels, they become friends very quickly. Like they're friends basically from, you know, a hundred pages into the first book, yeah. they're friends. So then you have 17 novels or 18 or 19 or 20 novels of them being friends. They are already friends and they already have this shared history and this relationship with each other that just gets more complicated over time. And like, I, I feel like that's such an, a rare thing to see. A rare, like you have men who are loners, you have men coming together to fight some evil or problem, but the idea of guys just being dudes, yeah. that's, that's much rarer. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I like that you see them at times, they know each other very well, and sometimes they reach the point where you might know some things about your friend that he doesn't always realize about himself. <laughs> and and it's, that's never an easy thing to have pointed out to you. It's never an easy thing to point out to somebody. When somebody sees something in you that you don't see in yourself, you feel a little bit of embarrassment and feel like you've been exposed more than you thought. And it, I was reading one of the books recently where Dr. Maturin gets into an argument with another ship's cap or another ship's doctor who is a drunk and he sort of makes a remark that it's a real shame to see a guy of your intellect just drink himself into these stupors <laughs> and the guy immediately seems sober enough to to burn him in turn and be like it's a shame to see a guy of your intellect use uh opium or morphine to that <laughs> same extent and him realizing oh i thought i was holding it together better than that <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought that that little foible of mine was a lot harder for other people to see and apparently it's not and th those books have a lot of those kinds of moments and th the movie does a really good job of depicting that as well where it can show you each character sort of has the virtues of their faults where the captain is the guy who has to be the hard charger who always believes we can get it done 
Otherwise, he'd have gone back to England one too many times and said, sorry, guys, this mission didn't work out. And then you don't get a, a new commission. You're not putting you on a new <laughs> ship. And to have them have those kinds of arguments where he's like, look, your ego to be the guy, to be the hero is driving you to make these blunders, driving you to put us all in a dangerous situation. And they get in these sort of big picture existential arguments that can seem like they are a threat to tear the friendship apart, but don't. And that I just think is such, you're right, there aren't a ton of good depictions of male friendship. It honestly, it reminded me a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I really enjoyed <laughs> yes. the, the friendship yes. there between you know Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters where you're like, this is essentially a movie about male friendship. And yeah. there just isn't a whole lot about that out there. Yeah. And like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like they are already friends. Yeah. Right. Like they have like they already have this long shared history and this comfort with each other that goes along with that. And you see their relationship grow and change over the course of the movie to <laughs> not to give away the ending, but it does all come together at the end <laughs> yes. uh, in, uh, in pretty striking fashion. But like that in itself, I, I think especially to men of a certain age. When you do have some friendships that have been around for a long time and you've got a level of comfort with one another that, that stretches back for literally decades, that's a different kind of vibe. And it, it can be harder to relate to the just now suddenly coming together thing or to the true loner type of hero. And you're looking for something that feels a little more lived in yeah, um, to slip into. Yeah, I also think one of the things that is appealing to it about a dad thing is... I don't know anything about sailing at all to the point <laughs> not, where not a thing. there'll be a diagram in the beginning of each book showing me where the mainsail is and the, all, all this kind of stuff. And I'll look at it. I'll look at it each time I start a new book, but I don't know if I really retain too much of it. Absolutely and it's not. so uh, lingo heavy, especially we'll just be describing, oh, here they come, they're tacking into the wind, they're, they're doing all this. And I'm like, don't understand it, but don't need to. I'm just charging right along and I'll get enough of it. I'll, I'll get the gist of what's happening. I feel like I can more or less picture what's happening, even if I don't understand a lot of these terms, but you're getting into such heavy technical jargon. And the thing is, I never doubt that the author knows exactly what he's talking about. You know, he knows this stuff inside and out and knows exactly like the politics of, you know, the British Naval Department at the time, all this stuff. And you just, you get immersed in that world where not fully understanding it in a way makes it seem incredibly rich and deep to me that I, I sort of, I have to check myself so that I don't only read these books. I have to, especially when I realize my local library has a bunch of them where I had to be like, okay, you can get one this time, but the next time you come back, you gotta get something different. <laughs> you gotta like ration yourself because it really is easy to just tear through three of them. Yeah. Like, and and not realize that you've done it. And I'm like, I gotta spread these out. I gotta pace myself here. Like I, I wanna be reading this series for much longer. You gotta, you gotta resist the urge to binge read. It really, it, it is an incredibly rich and detailed world. And the author does not hold your hand through it, which right. I really appreciate. He's like, you're going to be just as confused as the rest of these poor guys. And that's fine. That's a fine thing to do. I like it when the author trusts that you don't need to know absolutely everything about it, that you can 
allow yourself to slip into their world that they've created and just kind of go with it. Just kind of right. be there. And like, that's why it always rules when Maturin is like pretending to understand what's happening. Yes. Uh, because that's, yeah, that's, he it, never it, gets it. He never knows what the hell's going on. He's always like the, the basic things he's got to ask about. And even I'm just like, oh, you should know this by now, man. You spent how many years at sea? But yeah, I mean, it is a great useful plot device to have a main character who has to constantly ask, wait a minute, what's going on? <laughs> because you get somebody to explain it to him and therefore explain it to the reader at the same time. I, I also really like the way these books handle time. Like it, it prioritizes speed of narrative. It doesn't want to slow down the, the forward movement of the narrative to explain to you what's going on. And one big challenge, I would think, as an author, if you're sitting down to write these books about long naval voyages, we're just going to take us months just to get to where the action is, <laughs> just to get to where we're supposed to be doing something. That could be really boring. It could be really tedious as a reader, but he'll manage it to where one paragraph we're on the details of just one early morning on the deck of the ship trying to manage the sails. Is the wind changing? What are we doing? And it feels like we're going minute to minute. And then in the very next paragraph, within the span of one sentence, he could have covered weeks. And it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel impatient. It just feels like, okay, and then this happened as we went through the doldrums in the tropics. And then the next thing you know, we are rounding you know, the, the horn. And you're just like, okay, I appreciate that you did that for me as a reader. You didn't make me dwell on the tiny minutiae of weeks and weeks at sea. And you still managed to create the feeling of these guys have been on a long sea voyage, but we're actually going to skip ahead to some of the, the stuff that is important here. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get you to the meat. Don't you yeah. worry about it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that's extraordinary writing. It like is. leaving aside, leaving aside the subject matter, leaving aside the themes, leaving aside the kind of the core characters, they're just extraordinarily well written on every level from you. You mentioned the level of the individual sentence, the, just the prose is great. But then plot wise, there, there are A plots, B plots, C plots. There are plots within plots, but never in ways where it feels crammed or or anything like that. They're always handled at precisely the correct pace. Like, I don't know. I don't know how he does that. Uh, it, it seems like magic to me. It seems incredible that somebody should both have this wealth of knowledge about this very specific world, but also be that good of a writer at just fiction. Yeah, it seems unfair. Yes. <laughs> like you don't you don't get to have that many skill points to put into different things as you're as you're creating your RPG character. No, absolutely that's, not. That's too much. Um, I have one more thing that I want to ask you about just to to build on some of the themes we've discussed of destructive and self-destructive masculinity. What in God's name is happening with Conor McGregor? <laughs> like I, I I duck out for a few years and now suddenly he's been accused of sexual assault four times and he's very clearly on cocaine all the time. What is going on here? I think fame and money is what's going on uh, for the most part. I think that we've seen this arc before in pro sports and especially combat sports where when somebody gets to be the entire meal ticket, they can sometimes collect a lot of enablers around them mm -hmm. just because there's so many people where the way they get paid is off of this guy's getting paid. And I think that we've seen it, especially also in MMA with John Jones, where, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a manager who could be easily replaced if he makes you mad and he's making a percentage of your earnings, your coach is making a percentage of your earnings. Everybody is tied to you and the money that you bring in they then have a vested financial interest in keeping you in their stable 
and keeping you earning that money. And that means that they don't have so much of a vested interest in telling you what you need to hear at times, even if what you need to hear is you are screwing up. And you don't see that same exact structure in a lot of other pro sports where, you know, if you're the star quarterback and you're out there, you know, screwing up all the time, they might give you more leeway than they'll give the punter. But there is going to come a point where they're going to say, you're hurting this team. The the thing that we are all doing here, the way we all get paid is the success of the team. It's not just the success of the quarterback. And so we need you to get your stuff together. And they, Conor McGregor, I don't know if he really has that because it, even if you think, oh, hey, he's been accused of sexual assault by some woman who's just looking to get paid. Over and over again, though? Repeatedly? Over and over again. And in instances that are described as being very similar. And there's some people willing to tell themselves a story about that. Like, oh, that's just what it's like when you're rich and famous. Really? Because it doesn't seem to happen to <laughs> a whole bunch of other people who are just as rich and famous, if not richer and famous. Or, and it happens to him over and over again. So there must be something going on there. And I just think that especially when you become such a big individual star in a sport like this, there are so many reasons for everybody to just want you to keep the money faucet on and so many reasons for them not to confront you with your own behavior and what you're doing. And you've also seen it, though, happen to him as his growth as a fighter seems to have just halted because he got to a point where you weren't doing the things anymore that would lead to actual growth. You know, that his his trilogy with Dustin Poirier, I felt like was very instructive because, you know, he won the first fight when they're both young and he's out there, you know, throwing left-hand bombs and, and knocks Dustin Poirier out. And then when they rematch as more seasoned versions of themselves and Conor McGregor is doing well at first and then gets kicked in the calf and is going, oh, wait a minute we weren't really doing calf kicks that much when when at last I was immersed in this game. And Dustin Poirier is like, I've been living this game. This is what I do. Like, I'm in the gym at ATT. You know, I'm in there with a bunch of young killers trying to make their name. I'm not just building my own training camp around myself. So I couldn't help but learn about new developments in the sport and what everybody is doing and incorporate them into my game because I'm really about that life. And you're kind of a tourist in it at this point. And I think it's a similar thing where it's just like when you're the guy who can tell all the, the people how you want it, there's no boss in charge, there's no coach in charge that can tell you anything, some of the worst elements of your character could come out. That's really insightful. That answers a lot of my questions about this. It's just really, really striking to me because, I mean, I met him a couple of times back in the day before he was the biggest of big deals. He was already a pretty big deal. This is like 2015, 2016 in that in that range of time. And it struck me how thoughtful he was. Does, thoughtful doesn't mean that you're a good person, obviously. And I've heard stories from people who knew him growing up because I lived in Ireland for a couple of years and I happened to know a guy uh, who grew up in the same neighborhood as him, roughly the same age. And I heard some stories about what he was like as a youth, put it that way. But it, it strikes me he hasn't always been this way. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, is this like a money and a money and power and influence reveal the flaws that are there all along? It does it, it does it make you into the worst version of yourself? Like I, I don't know. It, it's like there's always been a certain epic quality to Conor McGregor, right? right? Like that he's he's larger than life, and this is something that's true of great athletes in combat sports that isn't necessarily true of other sports. It's a lot harder to be the big deal if you're on a team, right? Or to be the sole big deal. I mean, you can count on a couple of hands the number of players and team sports who have who have met that kind of thing like Wilt Chamberlain to an extent 
right? Like he kind of fits that just again, somebody who's literally larger than life, but you see more of them in combat sports. And right. So well, he's, it's because the financial incentives are so different. You are, you have to sell yourself. Just being good at combat sports is not enough. As we've seen over and over again, you can be <laughs> the best fighter in the world. Look at Demetrius Johnson, who for years was the best fighter in the world at 125 pounds. if not the best pound for pound fighter in the world. And a whole lot of people who were fans of the sport just did not care because they were not invested in him personally. And so as a, a fighter has to sell himself. And I think also one of the things that is going on with Conor McGregor is what the pro wrestlers would call live in your own gimmick. And he, is, <laughs> he has done that and kind of, he's made yeah. himself into this sort of Ric Flair of MMA where part of the deal is showing up in a fancy car and expensive clothes and making sure everybody knows how much they cost and making sure everybody knows just how large you're living. And that's a, an essential part of the whole Conor McGregor mystique and the Conor McGregor aura is that I'm making tons of money and spending tons of money. And there's a lot of people who get a vicarious thrill out of sort of following along with that. But also when you're selling yourself as this larger than life character, who's always out at the coolest parties and doing fancy things and riding around on the yacht I think you can trick yourself into believing that you are a larger than life person who the normal rules just don't apply to. And I, I think that that is absolutely an element of what's going on with him. Yeah. And we throw in a hefty dose of the booger sugar yes. in his case. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, that's probably not going to help because if, if that stuff does anything, it's make you feel like a God. If you yeah. already think you're a God and you're on a substance that makes you think you're more of a God, like throw in a, a healthy dose of probably some mental illness in there. Um, yeah, you're not going to become more attached to reality at that point. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Uh, well, on that note, Ben, thank you so much for your time. This is just an absolute pleasure talking about this stuff with you. And I sincerely hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. I love this. Thanks so much to today's guest, Ben Folks, for that lovely conversation. Next time on The Pursuit of Dadliness, I'll be talking about the history of fitness, gym culture, mom culture, and much more with the historian Natalia Mailman Petrozella. She is fantastic, so be sure and check it out. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you can, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It's really helpful. You can find me on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick and on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. The producers of The Pursuit of Dadliness are Morgan Jaffe and Leah Sutherland. Until next time, this has been The Pursuit of Dadliness. Take care of yourselves, friends. 